Good evening, and it is good to see everyone out. Appreciate your presence very much. As Ian said, we're going to be studying the last half of the last part, if you will, of, of Romans 8th chapter. I invite you to follow along. I will have the verses on the board, but I encourage you to do that. But as has been the custom, or I think the study of Romans pretty much necessitates that we kind of look back a little bit. Even Ian uh, didn't deal with the Holy Spirit very much, and that's pretty much what we've got. Let's see. That's pretty much what this study is in its entirety. And we could pick any number of topics to go with. But the witness of the Holy Spirit is, is a controversial subject. Verse 16 in Romans 8 chapter says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the witness of the Holy Spirit is, is controversial. Just the topic itself is uh, met with a lot of controversy. So we're going to look at that tonight. There's so much we don't know about the Holy Spirit, certainly so much that I don't know, but there are some things that we do know that the Bible does give us. There's some information that, that we are, that we are, uh, that was revealed to us in the scriptures, and we want to look at that. First, right off the bat, says the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Bears witness with is one Greek word. And that means give joint testimony. So we're not talking about a casual observer here. We're not talking about the holy witness is not, it says bears witness. We're not talking about someone who sees a scene on a sunset and witnesses that and is describing that someone. We're talking about someone who is giving testimony. We're talking about a being that testifies with us, bears witness with us that we are the children of God. And the whole world is in, is in agreement that the Holy Spirit of God does give witness, does testify with our spirit. The disagreements come on how that takes place and when that takes place. So those are some of the things we're going to be talking about here this evening. But we are going to be backing up because there's a lot in the first half of that chapter. Ian went around that, enjoyed his study last week, but he went around the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit for, for the most part. And, and so I'm going to back up a little bit and, and cover some of that. Romans 8 in verse 9, the Bible says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. So we have to have the Holy Spirit. We have to have that. 2 Corinthians 1.22, Paul said, Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, both of these passages refer to this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that, and that is a, a catchphrase, if you will, that is used 
to describe what one of the few things we know in Scripture that it is an indwelling of this Holy Spirit. And these two Scriptures certainly verify that. And I don't think that's, that's uh, if you hear that word, I've got about three catchphrases. And if you hear these passages, don't be alarmed because it is an indwelling of the, of the Holy Spirit. We're told that that Spirit dwells in us. Okay, Paul has some descriptions in, this, in the first half of this chapter about this indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we experience. Verse 1, he said, those who, are, who, who have this Spirit of God dwelling in them are in Christ Jesus, that they walk according to the Spirit. Also in verse 1, verse 5 tells us that, that those Christians live according to the Spirit. Verse 6, they're virtually uh, spiritually minded, excuse me, Verse 11 tells us Christ is in you if this indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, applies to you and that we're led by the Spirit of God. So these things let us know these verses that I've shortened there just to, just to illustrate the point tell us that it is not a subjective experience. It's not a something we feel. It's not an emotion. It is a tangible, uh, objective experience. Let's read a few verses there. Romans 8, starting verse 5, tells us this is not emotional, that it is a, it is an exercise of the mind. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. But the carnal mind is enmity against God for is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So it's an exercise of the mind. This is not subjective in any way. But we have these passages like 2 Corinthians 1 and 22, when Paul said, who has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And, and those type passages make us think that it's something I feel so deeply. And we hear that from people from time to time in their experience with the Holy Spirit. We hear this. Another one, Romans 5, in this same letter, Romans 5 and 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. Now, I don't want to say that, that as Christians, we don't have a heartfelt, emotional ties to our faith. Certainly that's Reasonable, and it's something that we do enjoy as Christians. But the word hearts, and it's translated the same way, there's no either singular or plural heart or, or hearts, doesn't mean the organ. It doesn't mean emotions. Mark 6 and verse 2 tells us that there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. It's reference to our thoughts, 
to the inner person with the thoughts that we experience. So when Peter said in Acts 2 and 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that was a reference to thinking differently. Repent is to reconsider. To repent, we know, is to change directions, but we cannot change directions and change our behavior if we don't change our mindset. And when, when this Holy Spirit is given into our hearts, it's still a rational experience. It can be emotional. I don't mean that, that it's not, but it's not governed by emotion. We're not led by that emotion. It's still an emotional experience, but it's, it's, we're led by reason. God told Isaiah, said, come, let us reason together. It's an exercise of the mind. Proverbs 23 and 7, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, now that's the Hebrew rather than the Greek in the Old Testament, but, the, but it's the same idea. There is certainly emotion involved with the Christian experience. But when the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, it's a reference to our thought process. There's certainly feelings involved but we can't be led by those feelings. We have to be led by what we know. So this indwelling of the Spirit is one of these catchphrases that I want to establish as we get into this study. The next one is earnest of the Spirit. Earnest of the Spirit, we have three passages, only used three times, but you're going to hear that from time to time. Another catchphrase, the earnest of the Spirit. Now, it's not translated that way in the New, in the New King James. The first one is one we've already looked at, 2 Corinthians 1.22. Paul said, for uh, who has sealed us, who has also sealed us and given the earnest, in the New King James, that's translated guarantee of the Spirit in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5 and 5 makes another reference, the, only, the second place that this is used in Scripture. Now, he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest or the guarantee of the Spirit. The third place, this is used in only three, Ephesians 1, starting there in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your Salvation in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or guarantee in the New King James of our inheritance until the redemption of the, of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. That's translated four different ways. It's translated earnest, it's translated guarantee, it's translated pledge, and it's translated surety. But how is it actually defined? Strong defines it as a pledge. That is part of the purchase money or possession given in advance as security for the rest. Earnest. Thayer defines it as money which in purchases is given as a pledge or down payment that the full amount will be subsequently be paid. So we're talking the amount of, of the Holy Spirit is an actual amount referred to in Scripture 
And also in the, in the last scripture we read, amount of our eternal inheritance. And when we talk about the earnest of the spirit, we're talking about an amount here. John 3 and 34 tells us that Christ's Holy Spirit was without portion. John 3 34, for he whom God has sent, speak the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. And by measure that is translated a limited portion. So in contrast to Christ, who certainly had no limitations when he was full of the Holy Spirit, in contrast to that, the scriptures tell us that ours is limited in some way. Don't have any idea what that is. So these three, two catchphrases we've talked about so far, indwelling of the Spirit, earnest of the Spirit, and then ordinary gift of the Spirit. Now, these are three catchphrases. I just don't want you to be alarmed when you hear one of these because they are scriptural. They are um, no reason to send off red flags. This ordinary gift, I don't want to describe the Holy Spirit as being ordinary. There's certainly nothing ordinary about it. But that's it's described as being ordinary in contrast to miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that took place at the time of the apostles. So in contrast to that, it's referred to as the ordinary gift of the Holy Spirit. So you're going to hear these three catchphrases from time to time. Don't be alarmed. Okay, let's talk about this witness of the Spirit. First, I think we all know how the Holy Spirit witnesses to mankind. Now, the passage we read, verse 16, said the Holy Spirit was going to witness with us that we are the children, with our spirit, that we are the children of God. But first, let's establish how the witness, how the witness of the Holy Spirit occurs to man. And I think we understand that. Hopefully we do. 2 Peter 1, verse 19 tells us, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay. He's referring to in the past. He's referring to the old law that was confirmed. The prophetic word is confirmed. So he was referring to those. The prophecy in those days never came, or in today, in his day. In the modern day times of Peter or in history, he said the prophecy never came by the will of man, by the emotion of man, by the feelings of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved. And this moved, we, uh, so many times we see people who want to take that moved as a reference to an emotional, I was moved, you know. And the word means to physically move. The word means to direct in a, in a direct way. So witness to Witness of the Spirit to mankind took place before Peter through the prophets. Okay, how about in Peter's day? How did, how did the witness of the Spirit take place toward mankind? How did that take place in the days of Peter, the days of Paul? Acts 20 and verse 23 
Paul tells us that except the Holy Spirit testifies, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So he was warned by the Holy Spirit in practically every place that he went that he was going to be persecuted, that, that chains and tribulation awaited for him. He was warned by the Holy Spirit. Okay, but how did that take place? Well, we have one example of that, Acts 21 and 10. And, th and this was... Um, Acts 21 and 10, the Bible says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And they fervently uh, tried to convince Paul to not go forward preaching. And I don't know whether he possessed the miraculous gift of prophecy that Agabus did. We don't know. But he said, I'm ready to be persecuted. I'm ready to even die and went on and was adamant about that. So we don't know if he already had that knowledge from the Holy Spirit, already been warned. But apparently this happened in numerous places. Prophets who were bona fide prophets of God warned Paul. It doesn't say that, that he was warned on the mountaintops and, and on the valleys and in the ocean. It says in every city. So the, the uh, phrasing there tends to make us believe that these prophets kept coming to him and warning him about that. So again, whether it was before the apostles or during the time of the apostles, the Holy Spirit testified through the prophets, either the spoken word by the prophets or the written word through those prophets. So how about us today? How does the, how does the Holy Spirit witness to us today? Hebrews 10 and verse 15. Hebrews 10 and 15, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. Then he explains how that happens. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon my heart, upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. Notice heart and mind. Heart was a reference to their thoughts and on their mind will I write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So how does the Spirit, how, how does that apply to us today? What is he saying here? The Holy Spirit also testifies to us, tells us how we do it, how he does it to us today. This is a reference to Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter, the 31st chapter, verse 33, when he says, this is the new covenant that I will make to them after, the, after those days when I will put my law in their heart over and over again. He says these things. Okay, that was written down on scrolls. That was prophesied. So we had the prophets who prophesied of it and the prophets who wrote it down. And he's saying the Holy Spirit testifies to us through that writing, through that prophecy that was written down. 
still testifies us to us today in that same scripture, in that same way. So I hope we understand where I'm going with this, that Holy, the Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit wrote these, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the words of the prophet, prophets and the apostles. Okay, Ephesians 3 and verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of, of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, the grace of God, which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me, and that was not a subjective experience, had knowledge of that, made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Hebrews 1 and 1, God who at sundry times and divers manner spake in times past unto the Father by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Those testimonies, those prophecies were given to those holy men of God spake as the Spirit moved them, as the Spirit directed them. They opened their mouth, and it wasn't a subjective experience. They opened their mouth, and out came gospel. They took pen in hand, and they wrote down gospel. Okay, so how does the Holy Spirit of God witness with us? with our spirit. How does that take place? The passage that we started with in Romans 8 and 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. May also be glorified together. If, if, okay, bears witness with our spirit, okay? Who's he talking to here? I jumped ahead of that. Luke 9, we'll get that in just a second. But who is Paul talking to here in Romans 8? The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is a letter written to the congregation of baptized believers in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, and he said, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Ian had his chart last week of the before and after. This is the after. Okay? The Holy Spirit witnesses to all men everywhere. But the Holy Spirit only witnesses with Christians the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. So there's conditions there. Even on the children of God, there's still conditions. Acts 2, we already read that. We received that gift of the Holy Spirit at baptism, at baptism when we repent and be and baptized 
and are baptized, then we receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. But to retain that, to have the Spirit continue to witness with us, we have to continue in our Christianity, in our faith. And one of the conditions is that we'd be willing to suffer with Christ. We've talked about that a little bit. Be willing to suffer with Christ. Luke 9 and 23, he said to them, if any man will come after, come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is a reference to daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Christ said, if we're not willing to suffer for him, if we don't have that mindset of the spirit, that we're willing to take on that mantle of Christianity in spite of persecution, in, in spite of whatever may happen to us, we have to be willing to do that, willing to suffer, willing to take up our cross and follow him and accept that mantle of hardship that goes along with being a Christian number of, of conditions imposed by the Holy Spirit as we remain Christians. Verse 1, if we walk in the Spirit. Verse 5, if we live according to the Spirit. Verse 6, if we're spiritually minded. Verse 7, if we're not carnally minded. Verse 12, if we don't live according to the, to the flesh. Verse, verse 12, if we put to death the deeds of the body. And then, of course, verse 17, we just read, if we suffer with them. These are some of the conditions. This suffering is just one of those. We have to continue in our walk with Christ, continue in our spiritual walk. It's not emotional, even though we certainly can be emotional with it, but we're not led by those emotions. Our path is directed by our mind. Romans 8 and verse 18, continuing on our text, text there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we have to be willing to suffer, but he tells us that that suffering compares in no way to the glory which shall re be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, again, this before and after that Ian talked about last week. This is, is uh, earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits. That's all of creation. That's all men everywhere. Ecclesiastes 3, the writer tells us that he has put eternity in our hearts. There is an eager expectation from all mankind, religious, not religious, faithful to Christ, not faithful to Christ. There is that expectation, that nervousness, that, that curiosity about what's going to take place after we die. And he refers to it here for the earnest expectation of the creation. That's all created man eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Who will that be? What will that amount to? What is that? That eternity has been put in our hearts. Verse 20, for the creation, that's again, the broad, that's the before, includes all of us. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Futility. 
same idea that Solomon talked about in all of Ecclesiastes, vanity and vexation of spirit, futility. That's a direct result of sin. That's a direct result of sin. So all of mankind is suffering, concerned about the future, and know that they don't have a future. They know that they don't have one. Hoping for the best, they're subjected to futility, not willingly. But we were cursed by God because of that sin, because of him who subjected it. And why did he do, why did he do that? Why did God subject us to those curses when we sinned? In hope. In hope that with the suffering that we're going to, to endure as, as mankind apart from God, this futile existence, this vanity and vexation of spirit that Solomon describes being apart from God. God subjected us to that so that it might produce in us hope, might bring us back to Christ, might, might lead us back to him and, and hope, find our way back to him. Verse 21, because the creation itself Again, the broad context of all mankind also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So there's the, the after and the uh, before and the after right there in the same verse. The creation itself, that's everyone. God offers his offer of salvation, of peace and joy in some way to deal with the futility that all creation uh, is subjected to because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Those who are faithful to Christ, those who, who repent, those who are baptized, those who remain in the spirit are delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. The whole world is suffering, and, and there seems to be, there is no end. There's no relief from that. There's no, there's no escape from that. And the only thing that you have to look forward to apart from God is, the, is more of the same for an eternity. Verse 23, not only that, continuation, but we also, Christians also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So we have those same futile thoughts. We have those same thoughts of discouragement. We have those same um, problems that people who are not children of God have. We, we also have that anxious waiting for the adoption. Proverbs 8 and 34, blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my door. Ian asked a question last week. He said, are we going to look forward to that when Christ come? Are we going to, are, are we going to hide ourselves? anxiously awaiting the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. 
Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is, is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. We hear denominational doctrine tell us that th this hope is actually because it's, it's, it's actually faith. Because we're saved by faith only. So they have to make this passage mean faith instead of hope. That if we have that strong saving faith that they talk about, that hope will be in, included in that. But the Bible tells us here that hope is something that is beneficial to us. It produces perseverance, that patience, and let patience have her perfect work. It's an important aspect of our faith. 1 Corinthians 13 and 13 tells us the difference between faith and hope. It said, now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. We understand that we're saved by hope. We're saved by faith. We're saved by obedience. Ultimately, we're saved by the grace of God. But that doesn't eliminate the conditions set forth by God. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, Paul said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Hope is so important to Christians. If we don't have that, we're of all men most miserable, Paul said. Back to our text, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. Okay. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be, un cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Many times in life, we don't know what to pray for. That happens. We don't know what to ask for. We don't know. Many times we don't know what's best. We pray that will be done. We do that. Leave it in God's hands. Ultimately, we leave it in his hands anyway. But the Spirit makes intercession with us. We don't know how that happens, but we just know it does. Zechariah 12 and 1, God said, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. When God poured out his spirit in Acts 2, after the death of Christ, then the purpose of that, so that men would look to Christ, the purpose of that revelation here in the pages of Scripture is so that men will look to Christ. God and the Holy Spirit and the Son of God reveal themselves every day. Whether we're in the deepest, darkest recesses of remote mankind or not, God, Romans 1, tells us that he revealed himself to everyone. So we are without excuse. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. 
even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. He reveals himself to us. The Holy Spirit reveals God and Jesus Christ to us every day. But the witness of the Holy Spirit with us only takes place when we're Christians and when we make the decision to continue in our walk, Christianity. Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a hard passage because there's times that I didn't want to hear this passage. <laughs> maybe, maybe you didn't either. Maybe there's been times in your life when things weren't going well and someone comes up and with the best possible intention says that and it's just not something we want to hear at that time. But if we consider this entire context, it is true. It's absolutely true. It may not be exactly what we want to hear all the time, but it's absolutely true. Let's continue on, and I think it'll be explained a little bit better. For, because continuation for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these, also, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. <coughs> Predestination. A tough subject, tough subject. But it's not that tough if you look at If we consider every passage of Scripture in the Bible, Compare it with every other passage of Scripture in the Bible that pertains to the same subject. So what's he saying here? He foreknew. Those that he foreknew, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. How do we conform to the image of his son? We're baptized into him, into his death. We become part of the body of Christ. That, that way Christ sees us and not Christ sees his son and not us. So he predestined the entire world. His plan for mankind after we left the garden, he predestined all men from the beginning of time that we might be able to be reconciled to him. Predestined us. His desire for us, his plan for us has always been that we be returned and conform to the image of his son to do that. Verse 30, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. The mistake people want to make is they want to make this into a group of people. Predestination, a limited atonement, that Christ just died for a few. Only a few are saved. But that's not what it says here. If we, can, if we consider this in the context of all mankind, if we consider this in the context, more, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The entire world he predestined them to, be, to have the opportunity to return to him. Not everyone's going to take advantage of it, but he, his plan was to provide us all with an opportunity to return to him. Many are called. Few are chosen. The entire world again is called. 
the entire world has the opportunity to become justified. And the entire world has the opportunity to be glorified. Doesn't mean they're all going to be, but they all have the opportunity. God's revealed himself to us, his son and the Holy Spirit. They're testifying to us every day. When we walk outside, we look around us. The evidence of him is everywhere. Testifying to us through the pages of scripture. Testifying with us if we continue as Christians. Has to be considered in the light of every other passage of scripture. Second Peter 3 and 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, toward us, not willing that any should perish, perish, but that all should come to repentance. All. That's God's plan, to provide an avenue. Well, not everyone's going to take care of it. But God provided an avenue for us. Verse 31. All things work together for good. He went into a little detour there, but he's back to that. Verse 31, what should we say to these things? How do we sum this up? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans, the seventh chapter was a wall of despair. Apart from God, we have no chance. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. That is the fate of mankind. That's the before that Ian talked about. Apart from mankind, we're hopeless. We're hopeless. But he gave his own son. All things work together for good. Those that love him. And if he gave his own son and delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him, through him, with Christ, also freely give us all things? That's how all things work together for good. If he did that, surely he feels our grief. Surely he feels our suffering. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Charges can't stick. Who's going to accuse us? It's God who justifies. God pronounces us innocent. Who's going to condemn? Who is he who condemns? So who's going to condemn us? Who's going to pronounce that condemnation? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If he did all those things, where's our, where's the charges against us? Where's our condemnation? Surely everything works together for good for those that love God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, you're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's Psalms 44. The children of God have always suffered. Certainly mankind suffers. That's 
the curse that God gave us through sin. The children of God have always suffered. They were suffering then in the time of David, but that was a prophecy too of the children of God of a later time. So, But we're going to suffer, and we must be willing to do that. Take up our cross daily for the cause of Christ. 1 Peter 4 and verse 16, the Bible said, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Do we try to figure out a way to glorify God in that time of pain? It can be hard to do. It can terribly hard to do. And I haven't gone through anything compared to what some of y'all have. And, and it's hard to do at times. But that's a commandment. If there's suffering going on as a Christian, we are commanded to let to glorify God in that way as a Christian. Because the suffering is going to happen. It may be something just a, you know, a little snarky remark. It could be something just a little hateful. But how do we handle that? Do we handle that in a way that glorifies God? We're commanded to. I thought it was interesting that this old uh, commentary, old centuries old, wrote this, and it's certainly not inspired, but it was an interesting thing that his, his uh, take on the first century Christians says, so universally was this practice, this tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, killed all the day long. That type of persecution was practiced that when a man became a Christian, he reckoned himself as a sheep appointed for the slaughter. So we know through history how Christians were sacrificed, their children were sacrificed, women spreading blood on, on their children so they would be killed quickly by the lions and the beasts in the Colosseum. We are going to be asked to suffer. We must through many tribulations, this was Paul after he, after he was stoned and left for dead, he said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Acts 5 and verse 40, and when they called for the apostles and had beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Christ and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We're going to be asked to do the same as Christ did. Verse 37, yet in all these things, all this difficulty, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's God. Even to the point where he gave his son. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, the Holy Spirit is testifying to all of mankind all the time. God is revealing himself to mankind every day, but he only witnesses to us 
if we continue to seek him. We continue to walk in the spirit. Verse 1, walk in the Spirit. Verse 5, live in the Spirit. Be spiritually minded. Be carn- not be carnally minded if we don't live in the flesh, if we put to death the deeds of the body, and if we truly are ready to suffer with Him. That's a study this evening. Appreciate your, your attention. We want to extend an invitation to anyone that might have a need. If there's a gospel subject in the, in the building this evening, we would ask you to come forward and make your wishes known as we stand and sing.